Welcome to the Live to 110 podcast. My name is Wendy Myers, and today I'm interviewing Kayla Daniel, also known as the Naughty Nutritionist. And we're going to be talking about how to recover from soy. And yes, I did say recover because soy is not as healthy as many people have been led to believe. And we're also going to be talking about her new book about bone broths called Nourishing Broths, which she's writing in collaboration with Sally Fallon Morell. Um, but first, I have to do my little disclaimer. Please keep in mind that the, this program is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease or health condition and is not a substitute for professional medical advice. The Live to 110 podcast is solely informational in nature, so please consult your healthcare practitioner before engaging in any treatment we may suggest on this show. And so for those of you who are not in the know, I just put a new and improved version of my Live to 110 by Wangless e-guide on the site. I'm a perfectionist and I just wanted to rewrite it and make sure I wanted to add a couple of things and, you know, make sure it was just right. So if you want to learn about weight loss and, um, you know, also all about the modern paleo diet, my version of paleo, go to live to 110.com and sign up for my free 35 page live to 110 by weighing less e-guide today i am honored to have our guest on the show dr kayla daniel she is known as the naughty nutritionist because her blog and her um her book about soy is a little bit naughty it's very very funny i highly recommend her blog i love it and uh, she earned her phd in nutritional sciences and is a board certified nutritionist clinical nutritionist and uh, you know so she might know what she's talking about <laughs> and she serves as the vice president of the weston a price foundation and is a member of the board of directors of the farm to consumer legal defense fund and in 2005 dr daniel received the weston a price foundation's integrity in science award dr daniel's uh, dr daniel's book the whole soul story the Dark Side of America's Favorite Health Food has been endorsed by leading health experts, including Dr. Russell Blaylock, Larry Dosey, Nicholas Gonzalez, Joseph Mercola, and many, many others. Today, we're going to be talking about soy and also about her latest book, Nourishing Broths. So, Kayla, it's so nice to have you on the show. Thank you. It's an honor. Yeah, so why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and how you became known as the Naughty Nutritionist. Yes, I'm, I'm the naughty nutritionist because I outrageously and humorously debunk nutritional myths. And some of those myths include the idea that, that fat is bad for us, that cholesterol is going to kill us, and that soy is a health food. So many, so many myths. And laughter is the best medicine. So I think this is a really good way to get some of these important messages out. Yeah, your book about soy really made a, a huge impact on so many people. Anytime I have read an article about soy, your book is always quoted. It's really the go-to book to learn about the, the dangers of soy. So why, in your opinion, is soy considered such a health food? Uh, it's all about marketing. Um, back at the point that soy oil was used heavily in margarine, they had a lot of soy protein left over. And if you're a smart in business, you're not going to spend money to take that to the landfill and dump it. You're going to find a way to use it. Now, the USDA had spent decades trying to figure out how, how to use more and more soy protein in um, animal foods. But there's only so much you can use before the cows, sheep, and chickens get really extremely unhealthy and die prematurely. The fact that they get fat is an asset because the fatter they get, the sooner they get fat, um, the more profitable. But the problem was too much soy was killing them off. So bottom line, only so much soy protein you can feed to animals. They had a lot left over and they realized, well, uh, how can we feed more of it to people? And here's where some very smart marketers got into the picture. They said, well, uh, soy has a real image problem. It's perceived as a poverty food, something hippies would eat or something that starving people in, say, Cuba or Russia would eat. It's got a really poor image. How can we give soy a good upscale image? How can we make people want to pay for it and want to pay well for it? And they realized they could make it a health, a health food. 
And that way, rich people and would want to pay for it, would want to get healthy with it, and the whole image thing would, the whole problem would be solved, and everybody would want to buy more soy. So people, they're really eating a lot more, a lot more soy than they think. So how pervasive is soy in our food supply? That's a wonderful question. And it's not just people who think and know they're eating soy, like we all know people who are drinking soy milk all day long uh, or eating soy energy bars, and those people know they're eating soy or maybe they're mixing up soy shakes in their blender or adding it to their smoothies or whatever. Those people know they're eating soy. There's a whole lot of people, though, who might not even like soy and don't think about soy. They're not trying to be healthy at all but they're eating the standard American diet. And the thing is, if you're eating processed packaged foods, you're getting a whole lot of soy. Um, little bits in each food, usually, not huge quantities. It's not like drinking soy milk, but there's a little bit of soy, say, in your canned tuna, there's soy in, in uh, pasta sauces, there's soy in fast food, uh, soy in more than 60% of processed and packaged foods and nearly 100% of um, uh, fast foods. So a lot of people who don't even know they're eating soy are getting it, and it does uh, it does add up. Yeah, my father went on like, a medical fast, and the all the, the bars and the shakes that they gave him all had soy in them, and he was just sick as a dog <laughs> because he was actually allergic to soy like many, many people are, especially genetically modified soy. And uh, it's just one of those things. It's in so many foods. Like I've heard that it's in 9%, uh, that we're getting 9% of our calories from soy. Is that true? Well, your father was one of the lucky ones that he recognized right away that he wasn't feeling good from it because a whole lot of people don't recognize that and you know their health may decline slowly and they don't realize that soy is the reason for it. But your dad, um, he, he was probably allergic to soy, and so he had some sort of more immediate reaction. Now, most people have delayed reactions, or they don't even realize that bit by bit soy is is having a devastating effect, for example, on the thyroid. Yeah. So your dad was actually lucky in that respect. Yeah, I had that problem too. I was vegetarian for a couple of years, and just eating soy in every which way I could figure out, and I the end of that two-year stint as a vegetarian, I had thyroid problems. So it definitely causes issues. So um, what health problems, um, you know, besides the thyroid that we just talked about, um, can soy cause that really warrants our discussion about recovering from soy? Yeah, there, there are so many possible problems. Uh, people who notice they're having a problem with soy right away, besides the people who have some kind of allergic response, um, the, the thing that people will also notice usually quite, quite soon would be digestive problems. They eat soy and then they're having cramping and, uh, you know, just digestive difficulties. Or perhaps they'll get a whole lot of gas. And those are things that people will recognize pretty quickly. I ate soy and then pretty quickly after I was not feeling so good. Again, they are the lucky people because the, the cause and effect is fairly easy to note. Now, the thyroid difficulties, that can manifest uh, somewhat slower, and people may not realize it. And then, say, people go to the doctor, and the doctor says, well, what do you expect? You're 42 years old, or you're 50 years old, you're slowing down. And, you know, also important to mention here, soy is not the only culprit. There are a whole lot of thyroid destroyers in our food supply. I mean, chlorine in the water, fluoride in our toothpaste. Uh, a lot of the medications, um, a whole lot of foods are goitrogenic. Um, soy is not the only culprit, but it is a food that a whole lot of people may be eating to excess, and the good news is it's something we can avoid. But if you've got thyroid problems, definitely you want to avoid soy. And if you're taking thyroid medications, whether we're talking something natural like Armour or Westroid or, say, a something like Synthroid, you should never be taking it at the same time that you're taking soy because the push-pull, the, the thyroid, is being you know pushed with the medication and it's being pulled down with the soy and that push-pull can actually, it's, it's how they cause cancer in laboratory rats. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's, that's really compelling because, you know, one in five people are on thyroid medication. And if so many people are ingesting soy unwittingly, unwittingly, 
it's really causing a lot of problem and contributing to this epidemic. So, um, so so are there any, are there any other um, health issues that soy causes that you could talk about? Uh, very much. Uh, soy has a terrible effect on the reproductive system. Um, soy contains phytoestrogens, which are plant estrogens, and they're not true mammalian estrogens, but here's the thing, they're close enough so that it fools the body. So they're hormone mimickers, they bollocks the system, uh, it affects the body's ability to manufacture as well as use hormones. And we're not just talking estrogen here, but also, uh, for example, testosterone. And an overly estrogenized man whose testosterone goes down because of soy is a man who is going to experience reproductive problems and loss of libido. And overly estrogenizing women who may already be overly estrogenized is definitely a problem for women. We know that soy is connected with infertility in both men and women. With women, it can prolong menstrual cycles and um, cause anovulatory cycles. That means she does not release the egg, and obviously there's going to be fertility problems if that is happening. And with the guys, it can affect the quantity and quality of their sperm. So not a good thing. And of course, another big thing, uh, soy will uh, tank the libido. So we don't want that. Yeah, I think that's something I always tell my male clients and they they can't believe that. and They immediately go off soy. They don't want anything messing with that. (laughs) This is something that a whole lot of bodybuilders recognize, that uh, soy is going to affect the testosterone levels and... um, you know, I'm the naughty nutritionist, so we got to point out the libido problems. Yeah, well, hey, you got to say whatever motivates people, and that's that's the one number one thing for guys, <laughs> and definitely for my female clients as well. When um, I have any any female that's coming to me talking about their they've been trying to have a baby for the last year and whatnot, number one thing you got to nick soy um, because it really does cause mimics that estrogen, but doesn't do its job. Well, it is amazing with some of the clients I work with one-to-one. Um, many come to me because they're having fertility problems. And here's the thing. It is amazing how quickly some women get pregnant when they start including a lot of good old-fashioned fats and cut soy out of their diet. Mm-hmm. Um, some of these women get pregnant too quickly, actually. You know, they don't believe they're going to get pregnant quickly. And I'm telling them, we want to get you really, really healthy first, so use birth control in the meantime. And it's like they don't want to hear that. They totally don't believe it because they see themselves as infertile. But we get them on butter. We get them on bacon. We get them eating meat again and soy (laughs) out of the diet and bingo. Yeah, I love that bacon as a a fertility food. (laughs) Bacon's a great fertility food, and that's that's your tease. Hey, I eat it every Sunday. I have my Sunday bacon. So uh, whenever I, I mention people should be cutting out soy, I've mentioned it on, on my blog and whatnot, people always invoke the Asian argument uh, that Asians eat a ton of soy, so soy must be really healthy and they have lower cancer rates. But what do you say to someone that poses this question? Yeah, we hear so many stories about all those soy-eating Asians, but here's the thing. Uh, First of all, Asia is a big continent, many different people, many different dietary customs, but wherever we go, Japan, Korea, China, China, of course, another huge country with many different people and different dietary customs too, but wherever we go, soy is not used as a staple food in the diet, it's used as a condiment. And that's the thing, they're eating little bits of soy every day, and just little bits, and traditionally they would be like miso as in miso soup, tempeh, and maybe a little tofu, natto, which natto is a true health food, popular in Japan. But here's the thing, small amounts, like a few little cubes of tofu in the miso soup, for example, but not eating a whole, you know, one pound slab of tofu with dinner. Yeah. And this is another thing. A lot of people think that soy milk, because it is something you could make in your own kitchen, is a food that uh, people in Asia have been drinking for centuries. But the first historical reference is 1877. This is very recent in terms of evolution. And soy milk was not even popularized at all in Asia until the 1930s. And guess who was doing it? 
Seventh-day Adventist missionaries from the USA. Mm. So they were promoting the idea of vegetarian diets and soy, and their intentions were great. They wanted to help a lot of people who were starving. But the point I'm trying to make here is until they started promoting soy milk, and in turn soy infant formula, these things did not exist to any extent in the food supply in Asia. Yeah, when I was writing a blog post about soy, I started really digging into how soy milk is produced and the, the waste product, which is um, the, uh, the soy protein isolate. It's horrifying. It's really hard to turn a bean into a soy milk or a soy powder. It goes through so many different processes that it's, um, it's really this highly processed, really unhealthy food. I want to clarify, soy protein isolate is a modern industrialized food product that came in after World War II. And the only way you can make soy protein isolate or soy protein concentrate or some of these other modern ingredients is with a lot of um, modern high-tech equipment, um, high temperature, high pressure, a lot of chemicals. These are not things we can make in our own kitchen at home, and that's part of the problem. And one of the things I tell people that I think they find quite helpful in understanding the whole issue is that, say for example, soy oil. You can't take a soybean and smash it and turn it into soy oil yourself. It's going to take a billion dollar chemical plant. Yeah. Um, you can make miso yourself, you can make tempeh, uh, even soy milk yourself. Um, so there's just some real differences and of course in terms of healthy oils you can make your own butter you can make you know you can eat avocados you can make olive oil yourself but soy oil canola oil and some of these other unhealthy new oils that have come into the food supply we would be hard pressed to make them ourselves our ancestors didn't make them and i think that's a good warning to folks yeah. Do you think you should generally just avoid any kind of food that you can't make at home? Is that just a good general rule? A lot of us aren't going to want to make things at home. Um, but the idea, think about, say, what our ancestors could have, could have made. Think of what could have been in the food supply perhaps anywhere in the world, say, a couple hundred years ago. Those are probably safe foods for us to eat. Mm -hmm. And then think about all the things that came in after World War II, all the things that Father Technology has brought us. And um, be suspicious. Um, the thing is, Father Technology's inventions are, are very popular because people can make a lot of money from them. But Mother Nature's whole foods, people find, uh, it's harder to make profits, high profits, from Mother Nature's whole foods. Mm -hmm. So, of course, what we're taught is we shouldn't drink, say, whole milk, for example. We should drink skim milk. Well, why would we be taught that? Because if you're making skim milk, the food manufacturers can not only sell the skim milk, but they can sell the cream from it. And because your body is craving the missing fat when you drink skim milk, you're going to crave ice cream. It's not truly about willpower. It's about how your body is missing what did not come with the milk you drank. Yeah, but yeah. the food companies make a whole lot more money selling several products than, say, one whole milk product. And isn't that why they, the, the food manufacturers have pushed soy so much is because it's such a high-profit food? It's very much a high-profit food. And once again, you know, you're dividing soybeans. And first they were taking out the soy oil and making vegetable oils and western oil and, and making margarine, making shortening from it. So uh, they had a lot of soy protein left over, so let's take the soy protein and let's turn that into a health food. Let's make soy shake powders, let's make energy bars, let's put it into tuna no less. Bumblebee canned tuna actually has soy protein isolated. Oh, wow. No. <laughs> I don't eat that much tuna these days, but that's uh, I did not know that. <laughs> it's just one of those things we need to check. Anything's got a label on it, we need to check. Yeah. So, uh, so how does one recover from soy? Um, I know for myself, um, I have a lot of clients that come to me that have been vegetarian, uh, really the longer they've been vegetarian and, you know, assuming they've been eating a lot of soy, really the worse off their health is. Um, some of the people that have been vegetarian for 10 years are just, are really, really sick um, by the time they, they find me. 
And um, I fortunately was only vegetarian for a couple of years, and my health and thyroid and adrenals took a absolute nosedive after the, just after a two year stint. So, how does one go about recovering from soy if they've been eating it, you know, unwittingly for a long time? Yes, I have a report on recovering from soy. And, of course, the first thing is, is common sense. You know, you got to cut the soy out of your diet. You know, it's like, you know, if you've got a nail in your tire, you know, you don't just pump more air into the tire. you got to get the nail out. So, of course, we need to avoid soy. And I like to say practice safe soy. <laughs> um, so if we're going to practice safe soy, we're going to really need to look at basically everything we're eating. And anybody who's eating processed and packaged foods or going out to eat and eating fast food is getting soy. So we got to change that. And uh, the only real way to get healthy is to stop eating packaged food anyway, even health food store packaged foods, and get back to real foods, whole foods, and slow foods, you know, the foods that Mother Nature gave us. And that's going to need to include animal products. It's going to need to include meat and fish, seafood and poultry. It's going to need to include... Uh, of course, vegetables and so forth, but real foods, whole foods, things that have nourished people for, for thousands and thousands of years. Now, if somebody's coming to me as a vegetarian, this may be a little hard to hear. Um, and occasionally people who are vegan, if they switch to vegetarian, if they're able to get access, say, to raw milk, and they're willing to eat eggs from pastured chickens and chickens that get to run around and frolic with the roosters, meat bugs in the great outdoors. Uh, if they're able to eat eggs and raw milk and say cream and raw cheese, if they're able to tolerate that, they might be able to get healthy as a vegetarian. But the problem for a whole lot of people I run into these days is they come to me where they've got allergies to just about everything. <laughs> And particularly, they're not tolerating milk products, even raw milk. You know, they develop problems from, say, supermarket milks because of pasteurization and other problems. So maybe they can't tolerate uh, the milk. Maybe they can't tolerate eggs. And maybe the reason they can't tolerate eggs is the supermarket eggs were from factory farms and the chickens were, say, eating soy. So, you know, the secondhand soy from factory farm chickens is another whole issue. Yeah. So for a whole lot of people, unfortunately, vegans who would like to become vegetarians, that does not always work out. Um, so people are going to really need to go back to an old-fashioned omnivorous diet with a variety of good foods, and that's going to be the start. But beyond that, we've got people who at this point, uh, at this point in their, their healing journey, they've got digestive problems, they've probably got leaky gut, they've got all sorts of food sensitivities and allergies, their thyroid may have tanked, um, probably got adrenal dysfunction, you know, there's a whole lot of things. And the first thing people really need to understand is you didn't develop these problems overnight, it's not going to go away overnight, you know, don't give up too quickly. And the other thing that's very important is... There's a lot we can do on our own, but this is not really a do-it-yourself project. Uh, coaching, uh, somebody who can help you, and some laboratory testing, and a real plan in place is going to help speed things up. And if you've already been sick for a few years, you don't want this to drag on any longer than necessary. Now, some of the things I point out to people and that I frequently find, besides the thyroid being down, I see a whole lot of women particularly, but also men and even children now have copper toxicity and often manganese toxicity. And we need to start getting rid of those from the body. And just about everybody today has aluminum toxicity and mercury toxicity. And, you know, we're not blaming just soy here. There's a whole lot of problems. It's just that the more of these things holding our health down that we can clear, the better chance our body's going to have to clear the rest. Is soy high in copper? Is that why people are so having issues with copper? Us and, and, uh, people high in copper are estrogenized people. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, estrogenized women, some of the symptoms we often see will be, um, you know, difficult menstrual periods, you know, terrible PMS, um, difficult menopauses. Um, if they become pregnant, they often have a lot of extreme morning sickness, difficult pregnancies, more miscarriages perhaps. Um, also, copper toxicity related to depression, um, bipolar, you know, any sort of mental health problems, anxiety. It manifests differently in different people, but whenever I hear about that kind of symptom, I think we want to do a little testing and let's let's see what's going on with you and copper. Yeah, that's what I do. I do hair mineral analysis and put people on a nutritional balancing program and that helps them to get rid of their excess copper. And absolutely, isn't soy, uh, isn't soy really high in manganese? Does that contribute to manganese toxicity? Uh, it contributes to babies in the first six months of their lives if they've been put on soy formula. Mm -hmm. Because a baby at that young and vulnerable age does not have the developed liver to excrete the excess manganese. And the body, the, the baby's developing brain is going to make it prone to manganese toxicity and problems from that manganese. Now, as we get older, we theoretically should be able to get rid of the excess manganese. Um, but here's the thing. There's other sources of manganese in our water supply, in our environment. And I'm just seeing a lot of people with manganese toxicity. And maybe it's not coming from the soy. But if that's part of the picture, we want to start eliminating it. And with the people I put on these programs, nutritional balancing uh, based on hair mineral analysis tests, um, the body in its wisdom may decide aluminum needs to go first. And maybe copper doesn't show up right away. And then copper shows up. Or maybe copper and manganese show up at the same time. Uh, they're not all going to show up at once because here's the thing. With the hair test, what comes out in our hair is out of the body. No better out than in. It's it's not an indication of, of all that's in us. It's an indication of what's already coming out. So maybe with the first test, we're not going to see very much, but we'll see patterns that indicate, yeah, hey, this is likely to be a problem. Now we get to work, and then lo and behold, in three months, six months, or nine months, or whatever, this one's coming out, and that one's coming out, and bit by bit, um, we start clearing the body, and bit by bit, start feeling better and in the meantime they may have some detox symptoms there may be some ups and downs it's not always a smooth and easy process but you know it's just got to be done so you're obviously doing hair mineral analysis with your clients correct yes i am that's great i love to hear that <laughs> uh, what lab do you use to do the hair test i use arl oh great i really like arl for several reasons um one of the main reasons I like them is that Paul Eck wrote some incredible reports on the problems he was seeing in vegetarian clients. Yeah. And I really like that because a whole lot of um, labs these days, just like a whole lot of alternative health practitioners, they all act like plant-based diets are the be-all and end-all and that they're the very best. And the reality is we see a lot of problems. Plants bite back and it's not just soybeans. And Paul Eck Yet several decades ago, recognized that he saw that and he writes about it. So clients who use ARL will get uh, this kind of report, which I think is very supportive of what I'm trying to say. The second reason I like ARL, and this is in addition to the fact that they do a good job, of course, but in their reports they will indicate that if on a first test somebody is showing like no toxic metals coming out, like there may be almost no aluminum, cadmium, lead, mercury showing up. And it looks like they've got nothing happening. And ARL, bless them, will point out that the reason is that the person is too weak to be eliminating the metals. Mm -hmm. Because if we're not getting that message, my clients are looking at that and saying, well, it looks like I don't have any toxic metals. What else is the problem? And this is what some of the other, level, uh, other laboratories will do. They'll say, your toxic metals are of no concern at this time. Well, hello, uh, they're a huge concern. The person's so weak that they're, they're still in the body and nothing's coming out. And this is not a good thing. And so at this point, I'll point out two things. Uh, when I first talk to a client, I'm going to say, 
Your first test may actually not show anything, but the likely thing is there's going to be some patterns that we can read that indicate that, in fact, you've got a problem, but we want to get you stronger so it can come out. And then the report that comes from ARL will back that up. Yeah, and certainly when people's thyroids, the, the thyroid sets their metabolism, that is the one of the main glands that helps rub up the body's energy so that it can detox these metals and finally get rid of them. And soy inhibits that. So you, you people, they have to cut out soy if they have any hopes of getting healthy and detoxing their body. They're going to have to cut it out. And a whole lot of people really think that if they just eat the right products or if they eat less of it or eat certain amounts, they're forever asking, what's the safe level I can have? And, you know, that might be a good idea, a good question, you know, back when, when you're still a very healthy person, but at the point that excess soy has, has really damaged you, it becomes a real toxin for your body that has to be cut out. Because at that point, uh, you really need to be focusing on what can truly benefit my body. And doesn't soy have a, a, a big scouring effect on your intestines? Doesn't it, can it contribute to leaky gut and food sensitivities? Uh, it very much can contribute to leaky gut. Um, and it, it, it's a big problem with, say, delayed food sensitivities and some of those issues. Uh, it is hard on the gut. Um, one of the things that's really amazing that's coming out with some of the new sophisticated gluten testing that Cyrex offers and that I offer through some of my clients up through Alcat Laboratories is that, um, that many people who do not tolerate gluten should also avoid soy. Now, I've been saying this back since 2005, but the really good news is other people are starting to recognize this as well. So all these people are going on gluten-free diets and they think they're clearing gluten completely. They're eating gluten-free products from, say, the health food store. And guess what some of those uh, gluten-free products contain? They contain soy and other, other garbage ingredients. Mm -hmm. This is not going to help us get better. This, is, this will maybe help us with, with directly having to do with gluten sen sensitivities. And, you know, that's good. You know, that's one of the nails in the tiger that we do want to take out if somebody's gluten sensitive. But for people to truly heal their intestines and their brain, they're going to have to include getting rid of soy from the diet, getting rid of MSG from the diet. There's, there's just many, many things that need to be removed. We really need to get on optimally healthy real foods. So are there any forms of soy that are okay to eat? Uh, sure, I really enjoy miso soup. Uh, often have that. Um, natto is incredibly healthy. Now, admittedly, it's a real acquired taste. You know, it smells pretty bad. It tastes pretty slimy. The texture is vile. Um, there are restaurants in Japan where they have special natto eating rooms so that the rest of the diners won't be offended by the smell and the appearance oh, of this. Oh, wow. <laughs> I have not had the pleasure of trying that yet. <laughs> Well, um, it's something some people really enjoy. If you enjoy it, it's an incredibly healthy food because it is loaded with vitamin K2. Mm. Now, this is not because soybeans are full of K2. It's because the bacteria that act on the soybeans and create natto create a lot of K2. It is an ideal food for getting K2. So if you love natto and you're not sensitive to soy, natto is incredibly healthy. So fermented, so fermented soy is fine. Right. Um, they're ideal. A little tofu once in a while, not a big deal. And, uh, you know, if you're going to a vegetarian potluck, I'm not sensitive to soy. I will enjoy a little bit once in a while. Um, and, uh, you know, likewise, if you're healthy, um, maybe it's not an issue. You know, you can have a little of this or that or any number of things on a once in a while basis if you're healthy. It's really what you're eating day in and day out that's, that's key. But for the increasing numbers of people that are allergic and sensitive to soy, uh, eating out is a real challenge because soy is in so many things. Yeah, so, you know, one of the things I tell my clients when they're having health issues, uh, when they've been, uh, they have got leaky gut, any kind of food sensitivities, I always tell them to eat bone broths because um, it's one of the number one 
healing foods for the gut. It's full of L-glutamine, which is the number one amino acid that people use to heal the lining of their intestines. So, and when they've had damage from soy, I, uh, or whatever their diet is lacking in animal foods that contain amino acids we need to rebuild our bodies, I tell bone broths. Start out with bone broths. So, my clients are always really surprised because it seems like this whatever food, people are just kind of used to having it around and kind of take it for granted, but it's really an incredibly healthy food and it's just not on people's radar as a health food. So, why did you want to write a book about bone broths? Uh, Sally Fallon Morrell and I just finished our book on bone broth. It's coming out in fall 2014. We've got a major New York publisher, so it's going to be in all the stores. We're very excited about this. And uh, we feel we can really help a huge number of people with their the healing they need to do because bone broth is very healing to the gut. So we have an epidemic of digestive disorders and gut problems and bone broth. And I'm talking here about genuine old-fashioned chicken soup made from the chicken carcass, made from chicken feet, lamb broth from lamb bones, um, beef broth from beef bones, fish broth from fish, fish bones. I'm talking about the way our, our grandparents and ancestors made soup. I'm not talking about canned soups and packaged foods, many of which they, they never even used the, the bones and foods which um, they're soup-like, but a lot of the flavoring is coming from MSG and other additives. Yeah. So we do need to get genuine old-fashioned bone broth, either by making it ourselves at home or from some of the very few small companies like Saffron Road or um, or Chef Gem's um, um, brothering products that are genuine bone broth, or maybe you live near Amish people and you can buy it from them. But we need the real thing here. Uh, but genuine bone broth can heal leaky gut. Um, many people will go on, say, a broth fast doing nothing but eating soups and broths for several weeks to do some healing and then gradually introducing other foods. Now foods are eaten as soup and eaten as stew, which of course contains the broth and the gelatin. Uh, they're easy to digest. That's, that's a real big factor. They're much easier to digest than say uh, steaks and chops. So all these people eating lean protein and thinking about steaks and uh, eating it as part of their diet every day, they're missing a big component that Mother Nature designed for us, which includes eating eating the bone broth. Yeah, that's so, really yeah. huge in Asian Asian cultures. They there's broths everywhere. Every Asian culture is eating tons of broths. Yeah, we think of um, uh, chicken soup as Jewish penicillin, and of course it's very big in Israel and, and with Jewish people everywhere, but the people who eat the most chicken soup are the Chinese. And do you know what happens to all the chicken feet from Tyson's and Purdue and all these big American companies? They all get exported to China, and it's used for soup. Hmm. <laughs> That's really interesting. <laughs> So the truth is Mother Nature designed us to eat all parts of the animal, so not just the muscle meats, but also also the bones, um, the cartilage, the collagen, the skin, and of course the organ meats. So if we're eating all these things, we've got a real, real chance of being healthy and healing from any health problems we might have. So how healthy is bone broth? What nutrients can be found in it? A whole lot of nutrients in bone broth. Uh, surprisingly, it doesn't look like there's there's huge amounts of calcium and other minerals. Now that does surprise people because there's a whole lot of internet stuff about how a cup of bone broth will be equivalent in calcium to, say, a cup of milk, but that's not the case. And we've actually known that since the 1930s. But here's the thing, all the research coming in indicates that what we need for healthy bones is not so much calcium but collagen, and we get a whole lot of collagen in, in properly made homemade bone broth. And that's going to be uh, bone broth made from the skins and the cartilage and the bones. So we're getting all the components that you're going to find in there. And that's going to include the amino acids like glycine and proline and glutamine, which are conditionally essential amino acids that we need for health and healing. 
We need those for wound healing, for gut healing, for actually autoimmune modulation. Um, the immune system needs them. So these are all found, as well as things like glucosamine and chondroitin. Uh, you don't need to take those as pills. Uh, just make sure there's a whole lot of broth and stews and soup in your diet, and um, you're less likely to have joint problems. This is something a whole lot of athletes are realizing, that they're not likely to have overtraining injuries. They're more likely to recover quickly from injuries if there's a lot of soup and stews and bone broth in the diets. Yeah, when I make chicken broth at home, I, you know, I put it in little tubs and put it in the refrigerator. And when you take it out to heat it up, it's this solid gelatin, basically. And it's just because it's full of that collagen that people need and people, uh, you know, your bones are all collagen. There's this collagen matrix that we have to have for our minerals to deposit into. And I think people don't realize that if they don't have that collagen matrix, if they are on a vegan diet or whatnot, even if they're getting their minerals or supplementing their minerals, their bones can be very fragile and fracture very easily and be brittle. Even if they have enough minerals in their diet, they don't have that collagen matrix that makes their bones flexible. Yeah, you need that scaffolding if that's not present. Uh, you can have bones that look thick, and but they can fra- you know, they can fracture or they can disintegrate like chalk. Yeah. So not so good. Yeah. So what health issues can be helped by consuming bone broth? Well, there's actually a long list of them. And with the digestive health issues, uh, we have story after story after story about people with um, irritable bowel syndrome, colitis, and Crohn's uh, recovering with bone broth. And also helpful, of course, to have things like good probiotics and and, um, cultured vegetables and things like that, too, as part of the mix, but the key being the bone broth. And then we also have a long list of autoimmune disorders that respond wonderfully to a lot of bone broth in the diet. And they would include rheumatoid arthritis, scleroderma, psoriasis, um, Crohn's. These are all autoimmune disorders. Many stories to that effect. And of course, you know, the first research having to do with rheumatoid arthritis came from, you know, since it had helped the joints of people with osteoarthritis, they started to wonder if, say, cartilage supplements could also help with rheumatoid arthritis and bingo. It it was very, very helpful. And then discoveries that it helped with other autoimmune disorders as well. We also know that broth is wonderful for infectious diseases. Of course, there's that phrase, Jewish penicillin. People seem to know it's what you need to take if you want to get rid of colds and flu. Uh, But it looks like um, the broth can be helpful in getting rid of unwanted bad microbial populations. It's just very important on a lot of levels. So so how many broth recipes are in the book? I believe we're going to have around 75 to 100. I think they're working out how many we want to include. We're also going to have a website and you know keep it updated with new recipes. And we are also going to be continuing to collect healing stories from people who've used rock to help them recover from autoimmune disorders and even diseases like cancer. Yeah, yeah. That, I'm excited for that book because I just kind of do the same old, same old every time. I just make chicken broth <laughs> and uh, just my tried and true and I just stick to it. But I, I, I haven't been able to find as many recipes as I would like. I'm kind of scared to do a lamb broth. I don't know why because I've tried a few at the farmer's market and they just, they just weren't made very well. So I know I, I, I kind of need for myself a little guide on how to kind of venture out and, and you know, you know, increase my repertoire of, of broths. <laughs> well, what I often recommend to my clients is, uh, first of all, just learn how to make the basic stock to start with. And Sally Fallon Morell's books, um, Nourishing Traditions, as well as the Eat Fat, uh, Lose Fat book, they all include directions on that. Um, there's great recipes on, on Nourish Kitchen, a great blog by Jenny McGrother. Um, that can be all helpful to start. And once you have the basics in place, what I recommend is, you know, pull out any of your old cookbooks and just adapt whatever recipes you've enjoyed to include the bones 
And, uh, you know, whatever spices and vegetables appeal to you, you can continue to use. It's just that many of the more modern cookbooks don't have bone, don't have the bones as part of the original recipe. So we just need to adapt it to include the bones and then go from there. So how long... It's not that hard to do. Yeah, so how long do you need to cook the bones to get the most out of them? I've heard that you really, to get the most minerals, you need to cook it for 24 hours and put some apple cider vinegar splash in there to increase the leaching from the bones. What is your take on that? Uh, it really varies. Um, with the fish broth, uh, just a few hours. With chicken broth, you know, maybe eight hours. With with, uh, with the lamb or beef, you know, it's going to be 24 or more hours. It's really going to depend on what you're working with. Um, there's quite a lot of debate on that um, that I'm still trying to, to study and understand more fully. Some people are doing things like they're making a perpetual broth where they keep taking some out and adding more bones in and keep going for a while. Um, I think there's um, a whole lot of different points of view, but my advice is, you know, don't wait until that's all figured out. Just start making it right now. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've been doing my bras for 24 hours, and my husband thinks I'm going to burn the house down because I have it simmering for, you know, overnight. Oh, my gosh. So I have it simmering on the stove, and it terrifies him. <laughs> well, the biggest piece of advice I'd have at this, at this stage is if you're not getting a jiggly jello-like broth after you refrigerate it, you probably need to be using different cuts or more and certainly adding things like chicken feet. Okay. And if you use things like, um, you know, shanks and you use things like, um, you know, ham hocks, you're going to get an abundance of gelatin. Mm. So if, if your broth is thin and it doesn't have enough flavor, probably you need to be using more more, you know, a whole lot of people seem to think that they throw in a drumstick and a wing that they're going to get a rich broth. Well, you know, it's not going to happen. You know, definitely throw those into the mix. But um, we need to use a fair number of bones, good knuckle bones, marrow bones. They're very rich and very nutritious. Okay. But for gelatin, just get those chicken feet. Yeah, I have to remember that. <laughs> so I have a question that I like to ask all of my guests. What do you think is the most pressing health issue in the world today? I think the food freedom issue is absolutely critical. And no matter what our own dietary preferences are, whether we're vegan or omnivorous or whatever, food freedom, the right to choose what we're going to feed ourselves and our children is an essential freedom. Our founding fathers certainly accepted that we would have that, that freedom and we're losing it and it's just so important for all of us and our farmers to be members of the Farm and Consumer Legal Defense Fund because we're fighting for that freedom and if if we lose that right there is just no way we're going to be healthy. Is that one of the things that you're um, you're fighting for for instance uh, the right to enjoy raw milk I'm kind of horrified that in so many states raw milk is not available for purchase. Raw milk is probably the most volatile issue. That's the one that's in the news. And yes, we, of course, are fighting for that. Um, but there's many other issues as well. Uh, many vegans, for example, feel they cannot be healthy if they're not getting raw, unpasteurized almonds. So we're fighting for the right to be able to get the almonds of your choice. Yes. And. Um, it's gone to the point where, say, little kids making lemonade and selling it in their front yard are, are being shut down. Um, people are being arrested for gardens in their front yards. Uh, people are having problems selling at farmer's market, and it just goes on and on. Mm. And food freedom is it just so important. And I suppose it's the second issue, GMO, but understand that food freedom includes the right to not have our food contaminated by somebody else's GMO crops. You know, the food freedom is the, is the overarching issue of everything else. Yeah, and so what does that have to do with? Is that, is that related to the, the FDA's controls over the food supply? Does that have to do with the the head of the FDA being a former employee of Monsanto, what exactly is causing us to lose our freedom? Well, of course, the revolving door between government agencies and big corporations that, you know, is, is an obvious source of corruption and it's one of our biggest problems. 
But the, the real issue is not um, the FDA looking out for us. It's our, our freedom to make our own choices. And um, Joel Salatin points out that the real issue we should be going after for GMOs is, is maybe not labeling, though I think that is extremely important. But the issue of somebody else's GMO crop you know, uh, going over and contaminating somebody's organic crop, you know, the, the trespassing issue. Yeah, that issue really does terrify me because the, the future of organics is really in doubt as long as people are allowed to grow GMOs. And once those GMOs are out there and they are pollinating and the wind is carrying them and bugs are carrying the pollen on their backs to other fields, they're out it, it's it's too late almost. it's a trespassing issue it's if you think about it it's the same issue as somebody entering my house without my permission and doing some damage and um that person should end up in jail and all of that and i think uh, joel was making a really valid point that, that that should be the number one way we're going after the the gmo companies mm-hmm. i agree right. So, Keela, can you tell the members, uh, the listeners, a little bit more about you and where they can find you? Uh, yes, um, my website is drkaylaDaniel.com, and I do a lot of blog posting and video posting, and um, I do what I call a lot of edutainment. I'm the naughty nutritionist, after all, and I like to present a lot of good, valuable content, but in a way that's clear and hopefully also entertaining, because, you know, we've got so much tension and stress in our lives, and um, let's get some information in a way that's, that's enjoyable. I love your Facebook page. It's so funny. I'm always really entertained by the posts that you do. <laughs> Well, thank you, and you know, I welcome people to join my Facebook page. It's drkaylaDaniel.com, and YouTube videos um, sharing a lot of this information. Uh, and I really love to connect with my viewers and my readers. Ask me questions. I do respond to people. So, so let's connect that way. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Kayla. I I really love this show because I can't. I don't. It's hard to convince people that soy is not healthy and that they should probably stop eating it. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you, Wendy. And listeners, if you want to learn more about health, you can find me on LiveTo110.com. You can also follow me on Facebook and Twitter at I Will Live to 110. And if you like what you heard on the show today, please give the Live to 110 podcast a review on iTunes. I need reviews to push the show further up on the charts and into the search engines. I'd appreciate it so much if you take two minutes of your time to do that. And listeners, thanks for tuning in. Remember, if you see someone ordering a soy milk latte or buying soy milk at the grocery store, take a minute to tell them to listen to the Live to 110 podcast that says it's going to make them infertile and reduce their libido. (laughs) So thank you so much for listening to the Live to 110 podcast.